Hey everybody, thanks for joining us back here on Bikes and Big Ideas. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister and host of the show, and this week I am joined by the co-founder of Deviate Cycles, Ben Jones, who's here to talk about the company's history, their philosophy to bike design, and a whole lot more. And it's a really interesting conversation because not only have Deviate been making high pivot trail and enduro bikes since well before those were mainstream, but they've dabbled in gearbox bikes, they're doing some experimenting in looking into onshoring their production to the UK, including their very striking looking 3D printed titanium and carbon fiber lowlander prototype, and a whole lot more. And so Ben and I chat about all of that, including how it can be hard to get consumers to adapt to new ideas and the challenges in pushing the state of the art forward without going too far and having people just not really know what to make of what you're offering. We talk a bunch about gearboxes and the struggles with getting mass adoption of those. Ben even tells us a bit about the mountain bike scene in Morocco, which turns out is pretty awesome and something that I had really not had on my radar until just now. And just a bunch of stuff about the benefits and trade-offs of high pivot bikes in general, why Deviate is still sticking to that layout for their prototypes of their short travel bike, again, the Lowlander. And Ben just tells a bunch of really good stories and offers a really good perspective on the challenges, rewards, and everything that goes into founding and running a small bike company. So it's a really fun one. I think you're going to enjoy it too. And with that, let's get right to my conversation with Deviate Cycles co-founder, Ben Jones. Well, Ben, great to sit down and chat. Thanks for taking the time. How are you doing and where are you today? Well, I'm very good. I, I've just got back from Eurobike, actually. Um, that's always an exciting show to go to. It's pretty pretty manic. There's a there's a lot there. There's uh, there's every brand you could possibly uh, dream of, and a lot more uh, there. So it's um, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty full on. But uh, I'm just back from Eurobike, um, working from home today. So no, it's a pleasure pleasure to be here and have a little bit of a chat about DVA and what we do and. Uh, what we're going to be doing. Yeah. And well, I guess we'll touch on what you were showing off at Eurobike in a bit here, but should rightly start from the beginning and just say, tell us a bit about Deviate and how the company got started in the first place. Where did you begin with that? So you're one of the two co-founders. So take us through that. Yeah, sure. So me and, me and Chris, me and Chris are old friends. Um, we actually both used to guide um, out in the Alps Um so we met guiding for another company um and then i started up on my own uh with with chris kind of as a non-official business partner chris was a, a big part of a lot of these um kind of adventurous trips we put together there were the trips we were doing were very kind of point to point based so you know you would uh like the, the kind of one we got famous for was the Mont Blanc Enduro. So you would start in Chamonix and you would work your way around, staying at a different place every night, um, using some lifts where they're available, using some van up lifts, um, using some uh, good old fashioned pedaling uh, to kind of get yourself around Mont Blanc, biased towards the downhills, but, you know, all about 
an adventure in the Alps. Um, so we both absolutely loved that kind of riding and worked together for many years, um, running trips in Scotland, uh, in the Alps, uh, in the Dolomites. Um, you know, we definitely both shared that kind of sense of adventure and love for riding mountain bikes. So throughout nearly this whole time, uh, Chris would talk to me about his ideas for bringing some sort of new concept in mountain bikes to the market. I mean, I'm talking, this is 10 years ago, you know, um, and, and we were guiding on bikes that were pretty poor. I mean, bikes weren't what they, what, what they are now. Um, you know, we were bleeding disc brakes every night in a, in a lot of cases and, uh, cracked frames and, you know, suspension wasn't great back then. Um, you know, and that was, that was over, over many years. Um, a lot of kind of evening conversations in the pub after a ride. Uh, Chris would tell me about his ideas and eventually it got to the stage that Chris, uh, put together a prototype, um, on his own back, this kind of big welded steel monstrosity to demonstrate a high pivot point gearbox mountain bike. Um, it's a prototype we still have. I'll have to dig out some photos. We still have it in the, in our unit. Um, so I think it was about 2016 when Chris came to me and basically said, you know, I'm an engineer, I'm a designer. Uh, I want someone to go into business with to make this a reality. And uh, it sounded good to me. So, so I got involved and we raised some, some money from an investor and um, went ahead and bought out the guide. I don't know. Did you see the guide, David? Yeah, have done. And before we get too much farther down that road, though, would be curious to hear a little bit more about just what Chris was cooking up with that original prototype. I mean, you mentioned, you know, steel and gearbox, obviously, is and high pivot as being key components of it. But as you said, we're talking, you know, 10 years ago for the original concept of it. And there were a whole lot of things that have changed enormously in the mountain bike world since then, you know, we've gone through this huge revolution in geometry. Things have changed tremendously on that front uh, and a whole lot of other stuff. So was sort of the high pivot and gearbox, the central idea for Chris, or was there a bit more to it than that? Oh, there's, there's plenty more going on in Chris's mind uh, that hasn't made it to uh, some of it's not made it to a drawing board. Some of it's actually made it to prototype stage. Um, there's some, some, weird and wonderful ideas um but yeah i mean it definitely started um so i think chris rode a zero g1 in new zealand and i think that's kind of what got him thinking about the high pivot gearbox concept so you know um hands up we we ripped it off from uh from zeroed um you know that g1 was was pretty amazing bike for the for the time and i know chris rode it and went this is the suspension system that should be on uh any gravity orientated bike and I think anyone that's ridden a gearbox bike, especially a high pivot gearbox bike, kind of sees what I mean by that statement. It really works. The suspension works in a way that is, um, you know, certainly I've never felt on a more uh, traditional setup. So he uh, he rode that Zero G1 and developed a a kind of concept for bringing that to a little bit more of an enduro bike kind of market. Um, so there was that, as you said, there was that kind of steel, um, prototype. Now it had a, 
it had an Alphine hub gearbox in the back uh, to kind of effectively a, to just be a bit of a proof of concept of if this um, kind of gearbox high pivot point system would work. But obviously, as the design evolved, it used a pinion gearbox, uh, centrally mounted pinion gearbox. Um, and in between then, there was there was even a concept for a fully internal uh, drivetrain. Like the drivetrain was hermetically sealed in the uh, rear triangle, and this thing had a gear like a gearbox that Chris had made himself. Um, I, I've actually never seen inside this thing, um, but it, it was pretty cool. It, it looked amazing, and, and Chris made it in his shed with you know prefred carbon fiber in his shed, and it it, ro it rode. He tested it, and it was fine. And I think that's kind of where I put my hands up and said, "Listen." Um, it looks great, but that's a hell of a sell. We're already trying to sell, you know, a gear, gearbox mountain bikes, which haven't really been done. Uh, as I mentioned, someone like Zeroed was was doing it, um, but it hadn't really been done in any kind of mainstream way. Uh, high pivot point. At the time, there'd been a couple of people attempting to do it, but mainly in the downhill space, and uh, I hesitate to say maybe not not in a modern take on it and certainly not not done particularly seriously uh, that's something that's kind of taken off in the last four or five years i think so uh you know we thought that high pivot would be a bit of a sell as well so eventually we settled on producing the guide which was you know using this pinion centrally mounted gearbox and the high pivot system um so yeah that's that's where we where we got to that was our that was our first, our first kind of production bike, um, and it was interesting. It, it worked really well. Um, I think we kind of selfishly developed it for us as guiding bikes. We thought it'd be brilliant to be guiding on one of these things in the Alps, and it was. I guided a couple of seasons on one of them. Um, it worked really well. Virtually no maintenance, no rear mech to rip off. The suspension performance was out of this world. I mean, still the guide rides better than anything we've produced since, uh, thanks to that centrally mounted gearbox, uh, which puts the weight in the right place. So, um, yeah, but it was a hard sell. It really, um, a lot of people were interested in it. A lot of people wanted to talk about it. Um, less people wanted to buy it. So we kind of struggled for, I would say, like good 18 months, two years, trying to trying to sell this kind of gearbox high pivot concept. Um, felt like a bit of an uphill battle at times. Um, and that took us to, yeah, I want to say 2019 that took us to. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about the suspension performance benefits of the centrally mounted gearbox, I'm assuming you're kind of largely referring to just pulling the unsprung weight off the rear wheel or well making it sprung weight by putting it into the mainframe and um in addition to the high pivot stuff but as compared to a high pivot bike with a more conventional layout absolutely yeah absolutely that uh but also the anti-squat is is consistent um doesn't change as you go through gears so you would find that its pedaling performance was was much better than you would expect it pedaled really well uh because we could control that anti-squat very precisely and it didn't change as you go through a drivetrain so yeah, it it uh, and th that obviously makes a big difference when you're pedaling through rough stuff. So yeah, it, it worked. It worked really well. Um, worked really well in the Alps. It worked really well all over. I mean, there's listen. There's some disadvantages to the gearbox. It's kind of well publicized. Don't need to talk about it in too much detail. But 
certainly paddling, you kind of definitely felt a little bit of resistance in there. Um, definitely wasn't as efficient on the uphills as a as an on gearbox system. Um, for what we were doing in the Alps, and I kind of touched on this, kind of downhill focused, but you still needed a bike with an ability to winch up a fire road for a couple of thousand meters at a time. Um, it, it worked great. It was a really a great solution um, for your everyday kind of evening rides, you know, long days in the hills kind of bike. Uh, it was a hard sell. Mm-hmm. And you think it is primarily the efficiency drop off that made it that hard sell that was the thing that was holding people back mostly or what would you attribute that to well uh, this is the thing they attribute the efficiency drop off isn't profound enough to really for for a lot of people for a lot of situations to really make the difference um you know i think people have tested it we're talking you know kind of between five percent maybe up to ten percent uh versus a, a perfectly set up derailleur system and a and a, a gearbox so you know there's a bit of drop off there but it's not night and day i think the you know obviously the the pinion uses this kind of grip shift method um i think what it was is from the market a lot of people were looking to try it they were kind of curious but they weren't necessarily ready to buy it without really knowing if it was for them and that required a little bit more than looking at a photo and some reviews or even a little bit more than a day test ride. I mean, I would say it took me like two weeks of solid riding in the Alps before I'd got used to the grip shift idea. And when I got used to it, I really liked it. But, it, you know, it took a bit of time investment to get used to it. And, you know, people are coming off um, a traditional drivetrain, um, you know, and maybe demoing one of our bikes for an hour. It's, it's just not long enough. You That first hour, you just spend cursing at it because you're in the wrong gear all the time. And, you know, it's not quite, it's not quite working with you as a, as a seamless kind of experience. So, yeah, I mean, I was, I was spending my time at that point driving around the UK, running demos for anyone who was interested in this bike. Um, you know, and we, we did sell out the batch we ordered um, eventually. It took, took a good 18 months, but we did sell it out. So, you know, the pressure was certainly on me to to get it get it sold. And it was, uh, yeah, a bit of an uphill battle, just battling against a lot of those preconceptions um, that, that people have. Yeah, and we've heard a version of that story quite a few times on here where you've got some people who have an idea for something novel that they want to do that, feels like it could be very genuinely an improvement, at least for certain riders in certain use cases. But if it's different enough, getting that off the ground, especially with a brand new company that doesn't have any name recognition or kind of people having a little more trust in the company because it's familiar, gets hard. And so you have this balancing act where you're trying to figure out how to incrementally get the thing out in the world but not make it so crazy that no one's willing to take a leap and buy it and it's a tricky thing yeah and i think you see it all over the bike industry there's some there's some pretty amazing ideas that haven't taken off for one reason or another um you know and often you're coming up against marketing budgets that you can't compete with um you know often the industry and the consumers just aren't ready for it um you know it and that's why i think after we after we did the guide and you know it wasn't 
for us, it wasn't like a failed product. Like it was a product that worked really well, got great reviews, uh, still has plenty of people riding it that we, you know, we still sell spare parts for these things. So, um, you know, it definitely puts on the map in some way. But I think after that, me and Chris kind of sat down and said, right, let's develop something that kind of is, is we, would, we took it from the other angle. We kind of went, what does the market want to buy? Um, and we we still took a punt on a high pivot. I mean, it kind of sounds strange now, but you have to remember this was, you know, when we were designing the, the Highlander, which was our first conventionally driven bike, there was no forbidden that forbidden didn't exist um you know norco cannondale trek none of these companies had a high pivot bike so we still we still believed in the high pivot system and we did extensive testing of the high pivot system against non-high pivot system prototypes we had and we thought it offered a real advantage which is why we went down that route and we kind of thought right let's let's use that as our usp let's let's shout about the high pivot while not kind of confusing the message with with the gearbox as well and um with anything else and and that's where the highlander came from so kind of a conventional trail slash enduro bike kind of sits somewhere in that in that mix and you know using the using the high pivot as the usp and it, it worked really well and it and that's the first product that we released back in I want to say late 2019, just before COVID, we released the um, the Highlander, and that was the first product that we released that and realized we had a we had a business on our hands. It we weren't just uh, playing at it anymore. Right, and so through the guide era, well, you were, I guess, also. Did you say era? Did you that. say era or era? <laughs> era. Era. Okay, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, no, not not criticizing it, just that that time period um you were still working as guides a bit too and this wasn't really yeah, yeah. taking off as a full-time business oh absolutely absolutely i mean i was uh, i still had a guiding company at that point um so i was spending every summer um guiding every week of every summer uh really and chris was still a had a full-time job as a as an engineer um, with an engineering consultancy. So, yeah, I mean, we were very much kind of part-time. Uh, we were both um, originally, so Chris is from Bristol. So originally we were based in Bristol down in uh, south of England. So I, I'd moved down there and through the winters, uh, obviously as a, as a guide in the nor- Northern Hemisphere, the winters are kind of quiet time. You know, me and Chris would spend time in the office um, I, rem- I seem to remember it was when Chris was designing the Highlander and I was trying to sell the guide. So, yeah, but we were we were playing at it, I would say. Um, we were trying we were trying hard to get to that next stage. Right. Um, but, yeah, we, we were very much uh, it was very much a hobby at that point. And so. Right. So then you come out with the Highlander, still high pivot, but gone to a conventional derailleur drivetrain and. um kind of what was the response to that i mean did it is that what something that just seemed more palatable to the market and was easier to sell and oh it was it was a night and day it was it was amazing it was you know we released it uh as i as i said to you just uh before covid kind of end of 2019 we released it um i think without stock i think we kind of had some samples and we released it uh pink bike and tested it um 
you know, the UK magazines had tested it. They absolutely loved it. And then as we, uh, of, as they released their reviews, uh, our inbox just lit up and people wanted to get on the pre-order list for, for this thing. And I think it was March when we received it. In fact, yeah, it's right. We just moved into our first ever unit in March 2020 and COVID happened. Uh, and the one industry that the UK government didn't shut down was the mountain bike industry or the bike industry in general. So for for about a week, we were like, Jesus, we've just taken on this this lease for this unit. We've just got this bike ready to go. But, you know, keep in mind, they were arriving from our factory in bits. It took quite a bit of labor to put them together and shift them. And we were like, we're going to have to send everyone home. We're not going to be allowed to come into the unit. Like, But anyway, the, the government let the bike industry operate. Um, so, yeah, from like March, April 2020, we were we were shifting the first batch of of this Highlander. And since that point, every single batch of the Highlander that we've uh, received into into our uh, unit in, in central Scotland uh, was already sold before it uh, before it kind of uh, arrived. So that was, uh, you know, that was amazing. I mean, for for a small business to be in that position where everything we're ordering from our factory is already sold before it arrives was was absolutely amazing. I mean, um, whether or not that was, I, I like to think that partly it was because we bought our product that that people liked and that worked really well. Uh, there was definitely a, a huge uptick in demand um, for COVID as well. So our issues uh, then became one of being able to get these things rather than and all the other parts you need to go along with it. I mean, things like cardboard boxes you couldn't get hold of for a bit just to ship the things. Um, you know, it was it was tough to get hold of things. So that became the challenge for not just us, but the whole industry was getting hold of uh, getting hold of stock and and getting that stock to where you needed it at a reasonable price was all but impossible. But you know, it, it really for us it was great because we were in a position where we were selling everything we could get hold of and. We had dealers wanting to wanting to stock our products, and you know the direct customer coming to us and getting on the waiting list. And yeah, I mean it tra- transformed the business and really gave us the confidence to keep going. And you know, and then it was the well, Chris started straight away, pretty much the moment we knew the the Highlander was successful and we were selling it, we started designing the plane straight away, straight after that. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, and yeah, I guess that's the next step in the line then. Tell us about the Claymore. Yeah, so the Claymore came out, God, what is it now? It's 2023 now. The Claymore came out in 2022. So a couple of years after the Highlander had um, hit the market. And, you know, again, that came out to some really great reviews by all uh, all the magazines that we sent it to and all the online publications we sent it to. And it was kind of the same story as the guide. Like we couldn't get these things in stock quick enough to fulfill the demand. And, you know, that's kind of been the case since the start of the Claymore. I think what what we tried to do with the Claymore is develop an Enduro race bike that was still fun to ride as your everyday normal bike. Because we have to be honest, a lot of people overbike themselves. Um, and I've ridden some of these kind of Enduro race bikes as a, as a guide um, out in the Alps. We were supported by various companies. You know, and they're long, they're slack, they're fast. Um, they're almost too long, too slack, and too fast uh, for an everyday kind of use case. So, with the 
Well, I think it's something that the high pivot point does really well. I think the high pivot point offers stability without having to put stupid geometry on the bike, without having to make the bike too long and super slack. You can kind of get a lot of the stability people are looking for with the high pivot system while also putting angles on the bike that mean it's kind of all round. And, you know, that works for a lot of these EWS tracks or EDR now, these EDR tracks, you know, which aren't just, I mean, some of them are getting more and more like downhill stages, but not all of them. You know, it needs to be a bike that can pedal, needs to be a bike that's good um, in when it's really tight. You know, here at home, uh, the Inleith and the Tweed Valley EDR is tight. It's technical. You know, a bike that's purely designed to rattle down a rocky alpine um, trail is is not necessarily what you want for for racing those kind of trails. So I think it almost translated to being a great race bike. Um, it's kind of hard for me to say that in some ways. We don't have a, or the time, we didn't have a race team. We now have a few races racing for us, which is cool. Um, you know, but yeah we we thought it we thought it worked really well as a as a kind of race bike as an all-round bike and i i think that kind of applies across the range and i think it's something the high pivot does really well is it takes a bike so it takes like a trail bike geometry for example like something like the new highlander which is kind of trail bike geometry and it extends the terrain you want to use it in by offering that stability um you know, and there's there's something to be said as well. Like it used to be a case that high pivots um, and their anti-rise curve, the high anti-rise, was thought of as being a bit of a disadvantage. You know, it kind of brake jack. You remember, the, you know, ten years ago, everyone was obsessed with the with the thing. Uh, I think people have now realised that um, a squatting of the rear suspension under heavy braking. Um, while it does firm up the rear suspension for sure, it also holds your geometry. Uh, as you're breaking into heavy corners. So in a lot of ways, the harder you ride one of these high pivot bikes, the more they give you back. Uh, and they definitely suit a harder, more aggressive rider. And we see that with the, the customer feedback. Uh, the people that are harder, heavier riders get the most out of this platform because they can push it. And as you push it, you know, weird things don't happen with the geometry, kind of the geometries, uh, geometries maintained. So you know, I think I think it's a it's a real advantage to the high pivot system, and it allows our range to um, take into account kind of more use cases. Something that you noted in there a bit, kind of about how you've made some bikes that, in some ways, have a touch more moderate geometry than perhaps has become the norm for, you know, enduro race bikes, let's say, um, but are just aiming to get a bit of stability out of the high pivot system and the fact that you've got some, you know, rear end growth and wheelbase lengthening that way, rather than making the bike monstrously long sort of static kind of from the jump, uh, makes a good bit of sense. But, um, I guess from the perspective of sort of the overall model range, I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts too, about how you have thought about essentially, separating the Highlander, now the Highlander 2, and the Claymore um, from each other versus maintaining kind of a more cohesive familiarity to like what the different models across the range feel like, such that they are more, you know, slightly different characters of 
basically the same sort of general idea and what the philosophy there looks like because there's sort of many different ways you could approach that and curious for your take on it yeah it's a, it's a really good question and you know almost on paper the two bikes are fairly like let's just take the Highlander two and the claymore they're kind of a, a fairly similar bike i mean yeah the claymore has 20 mil more travel and is a little bit slacker but you know they're kind of similar bikes and i think that's deliberate um the way i think of the highlander 2 is what do i want in the back of my van if i'm doing a road trip around all the best riding spots anywhere but let's say europe um all the best riding spots in europe and the highlander 2 kind of does it all it's a lot of fun on playful trails um it's a lot of fun when it's not quite as <clears throat> full-on as kind of maybe enduro territory is now. Um, so it really is all that all rounder, but you're going to have no problem with taking that bike down an EDR track and you're going to have, you know, even a downhill track. Um, you're not going to be winning any races on it, but you've, you're going to have no problem taking it on that and enjoying it. Uh, whereas the Claymore was, you know, kind of meant to be that bike for uh, riding uplifted stuff, for riding enduro race, you know, enduro races and, just for those people that kind of live near terrain that, that justifies that kind of bike. So, you know, they ride kind of similar, but I, I've got a couple of friends that have both and they all comment on just how different they feel. And it is down to that feel of it. I mean, partly that's due to setup, right? I mean, the, the Highlander has an air shock, the Claymore's uh, people run them with air shocks, but we've kind of designed it around a coil shock. Um, so, you know, you do obviously just from from those from that one component, you get a different feel from the kind of um, the type of forks you're putting on it. So the Claymore is designed around a kind of 38 millimeter diameter fork, um, 170, 180 travel, whereas the Highlander 2 is kind of 36. So a lot more, you know, a lot more compliant in that um, in the chassis of that. And it translates to a bike that's a lot more playful, a lot more agile, a lot more suited to your kind of everyday rides. Whereas as much as, much as people maybe think that they're EDR races, um, I would use myself as an example. You know, I I use I use the Highlander 2 because 90% of the riding I do is more suited to that bike. And for the for the 10% of the times that I'd rather have a Claymore, I was gonna say I would just take a claim off from the demo from the demo stock, but for the ten percent of the riding I do, um, you know, the Highlander two is more than adequate, if not the absolute best tool for the job. And I think that probably works for most people. So, yeah, um, we've tried to kind of stay away from these categories that the industry has put on bikes. Um, it's hard because we release a bike and everyone puts a category on it. Um, you know, so we would kind of call the Highlander 2 a kind of trail bike. I don't know, maybe they used, it used to be an all-mountain bike. You know, for me, it's a 145 bike that can do anything you want on it. Um, and the Claymore's a kind of 165 big-hitting bike that can do anything you want on it that's gravity-orientated. So, you know, I think I think the kind of customer that's buying our bikes look at the specs and kind of get that, get what it's, what it's for. Um, you know, I'll talk a little bit about the future development in a bit. And, you know, we're looking at a, an even kind of lighter, shorter travel bike. Uh, and again, people have already started putting downcountry 
uh, labels on it. Like that, that's not us. Like we're not we're not calling it a down country bike. Like we we'll call it a, a one two five travel bike with kind of trail bike geometry that you can do whatever you want on. You don't have to be doing down country. I don't really even know what that is. Um, I don't think many people do. So yeah, I think I think for us, like those twenty mil increments in travel says enough to most of the kind of fairly. Uh, I mean, the people that are buying our bikes are people that really know the sport and know what they want. So I think that says enough um, so that people are buying buying the bike that they that they want from us. Um, arguably, people are probably riding the Claymore when they should be riding the Highlander too. But I think that's probably the case all over the industry. And I, I'm not saying that from a point of view of they're riding a, a, a 165 bike, but they're not riding hard enough to justify it. I don't mean that at all. I just mean that the terrain that they're on would make more sense on a short travel bike and they would probably end up having more fun. Um, you know, and I know that myself. I, I took a Claymore to Morocco on a trip last year. It was a great trip, by the way. It was it was fantastic. And, you know, it was just too much bike. Like the trails just weren't appropriate for a massive enduro bike it would have been a lot more fun we would have had fun but it would be a lot more fun on a on a Highlander two or even an even lighter bike uh to really get the most out of what was often fairly mellow terrain no that makes a ton of sense and certainly kind of generally in agreement that there are a load of people out there over biking a bit and you know there's there's a place for it but would be curious to hear a little bit more about that Morocco trip, though, not exactly the first thing that springs to mind as a mountain biking destination, though. Seems like a cool place to go. What was the riding like? Oh, man, it was good. It was really good. Um, yeah, I can, I went out with uh, a company called Cycle Morocco that are actually a, a Spanish company run by an English guy. But they, they employ Moroccan guides. So um, his name forgets me, which is really embarrassing. But the uh, the owner of that company, I think it's Mark, the owner of that company, um really knows what a good trail is um you know from what he's put together in spain so i was pretty confident going out there that we wouldn't be riding fire roads that we'll be riding some good tracks and yeah i mean the riding was great but you know somewhere like that it's it's kind of goes back to what i was discussing at the start it's like that spirit adventure you get on the bike uh it's a really adventurous place to ride you're right out there in the middle of the atlas mountains you're meeting the locals. Uh, they're all super friendly. The Berber culture is one of openness and welcomeness. And, you know, they massively welcomed us into their communities on bikes. Um, we were using donkeys for uplifts at times, strapping the bikes to the donkeys. And, you know, it, it was a real experience. And somewhere I would recommend anyone that uh, enjoys riding great trails, but also enjoys uh, an adventure that's that's more than just about the mountain biking um, to go to so yeah highly recommended really enjoyed cool yeah add that to the ever-growing list i suppose absolutely oh anyway that little digression aside yeah i mean it's a tricky thing from a brand's perspective to think about kind of clarifying their model lineup and um obviously you know yours is not at least as of yet especially wide so you know relatively few models makes that a bit simpler but still you've kind of have to make some decisions about how widely you want to differentiate the different bikes versus, you know, what kind of spacing you want to have between them, so to speak. Yeah, it's it's definitely it's definitely a challenge. It's definitely, you know, you need to make sure you're not 
there's enough of a difference that people kind of get it um you know and i think when we release the a shorter travel bike that will probably be as short as we go because it's very very hard to want to compete with the likes of scott for pure cross-country racing bikes and it's not what we do so you know, we've we've never done that, so we're not going to try. So equally, I don't see any point soon as making a gravel bike. So we're kind of stuck in this kind of mountain bike segment, and I think we make bikes we want to ride, kind of unapologetically. We make ride bikes we want to ride. So, uh, and we, yeah, I think uh, I think having having three frames in a lineup is enough um, to cover most bases, uh, especially as we sell frame only mostly now we don't have a complete at the moment that is coming soon but we don't have a complete so the kind of people that are riding our bikes are able to spec it up to suit what they're doing um which we see quite a lot of we see people putting together kind of very lightweight claymores for for racing actually uh claymores with a with a light fork like a 170 36 or something on a claymore um you know light wheels and really making it into their kind of race weapon Whereas then I see people, I get asked every day if I, if someone could put dual crowns on the, on the claim of, um, the answer is no for anyone, uh, wondering. Um, but yeah, people are kind of building it up as bike park, free ride bikes as well. So I think the component choice makes a big difference to that as well. And there's, you know, three bikes within the mountain biking category, um, I think is, is more than enough. And well, we've been dancing around this for a bit here, but, uh, you know, you've certainly hinted at a shorter travel bike, but one of the really interesting aspects of that is that, as I mentioned up top, at Eurobike, you were showing off, uh, I don't know if you want to call it a prototype or a design study or what exactly the right term would be, but not only a shorter travel bike, but one with quite radically different construction than what you've done to date. So I guess tell us about what you've done and what the thinking behind it is. Sure. So it's part of a longer term project that we're working on to explore the possibility of bringing production uh, to the UK. Um, what we don't want to do is bring production to the UK and put in a kind of copy and paste version of what Asian production looks like. Um, you know, the frames that are made in Taiwan, China, Vietnam, Cambodia um, are made very well. Um, and you're not going to be able to compete on price. Uh, you're going to struggle to compete on quality, uh, if I'm honest. Uh, so we wanted to do something pretty different. If we're going to bring production to the UK, we want to do it using using some manufacturing methods that we can be price competitive with Asian production on um, and also bring a product to the market that is uh, unique and high quality and has some uh, advantages in terms of sustainability, in terms of recyclability and um, in terms of uh, for our business, in terms of our length of our supply chains um, and the cost of inventory and, and some things like that. So. Um, the bike you're referring to has 3D printed titanium lugs uh, with some titanium tubes welded in and then some filament wound carbon tubes bonded in. So there's actually, there's 
there's two prototypes that are kicking around at the moment uh, and we will be releasing some more information on both of them one of them is a full titanium prototype with full titanium tubes across it all welded into 3d printed titanium lugs it looks phenomenal um it's not going to be a production reality um the in the unit cost is eye-watering um it was very much a kind of can we can we do this and turns out we can uh just not at a very competitive price point um it was a kind of can we do it kind of project uh it looks great it's actually uses the same geometry as the highlander it's, it's a thailander um and it, it it works it works really well so you know that was the first um kind of bike in that design study i like that i like that term in, in that design study and then we moved on to using similar concept but integrating some um carbon tubes which are bonded in um and on the frame you're referring to it's the seat tube that is that is carbon that is bonded in uh as this process evolves it will probably end up having more carbon tubes and less titanium in it um all about getting to this price point that um is going to be competitive with asian production so yeah and we decided to use the lowlander use our short travel concept as a you know as a basis for this design study so the lowlander uh isn't uh ready for production yet there we're not 100% sure maybe the lowlander will be similar to the kind of production methods we currently use the the full carbon production methods and we'll release it um sooner rather than later although our intention at the moment is to kind of move forward with this design study and hopefully bring some of these new production techniques to this frame um it's certainly not going to be released next year i mean this is a little bit of a longer term project um but it's an it's an interesting method of of um manufacture so it uses something called um cold metal fusion uh to 3d print the titanium lugs uh which is really interesting because it one there's there's pretty much zero waste with the process uh you're not wasting a whole bunch of titanium every time you you run a a process um so the zero waste is great it's also great for for a from a cost point of view um it also traditional 3d printing titanium 3d printing requires an awful lot of what they call support structures um and you'll have to excuse me a little bit on this david i'm not an engineer i'm i'm not uh talking as an engineer here but my understanding of it is that standard 3d printed titanium uses all this support structure which need to be uh, machined off um or chipped off uh is probably a more accurate way of doing it it's, it's more it's literally with a hammer and chisel in cases to remove these support structures which is which is usually wasteful takes an awful lot of machine time and takes a lot of post-processing time um using cold metal fusion um cmf um we're hoping to massively reduce that kind of time um the other thing to point out is it it uses a it uses machinery that is much more affordable than um the machinery that's used in something like what the Athertons do, for example, which is uh, kind of 3D printed titanium as well. But the machinery that it uses is a lot more affordable, which 
you know, our intention is makes it cost competitive with an Asian carbon frame. So, you know, obviously then you're bonding in these carbon tubes. We're looking at filament wound carbon tubes, which is again a process we could do ourselves. Um, so with, with raw carbon, we could have a machine that, that produces these filament wound carbon tubes. Um, so that whole process kind of gives us and the engineering team will will have my head for this but gives us a little bit of a kind of push button approach to bike production when someone orders a frame we push a button and out the other side comes a completed frame uh, let's be honest a couple of weeks later um but that's a massively different process from what it is at the moment where we instruct um a factory in asia to to make the frames maybe a year in advance they spend three months on a boat they sit in our warehouse you know uh, we really need a crystal ball um, in terms of um, forecasting demand when we're ordering that kind of thing, and we have a lot of uh, a lot of cash and resource tied up in in these frames that are either being manufactured or are on a boat to us. So it, it kind of eliminates that whole supply chain if we can do it. Um, the, the challenge is really going to be bringing that to a price point that is competitive. How much would you say this sort of general plan of trying to bring production to the UK has to do with the experience from the various COVID related supply chain headaches that the whole industry went through over the last handful of years, as compared to just, um, well, any other of the number of <laughs> very valid reasons one would want to do such a thing. Yeah, I mean, listen, the, the factory that we uh, work with in Asia has been fantastic through the whole process. So it's no... Um, it's not because there's any um, problem with that supply chain. Um, it's more to, it makes business sense to do it. And I think we've always wanted to make stuff. Right now we design stuff and we do the assembly in the in the UK, which is great. Uh, we do all the assembly in Scotland. So we get to make sure that stuff leaving our, our uh, assembly facility is um, in top condition kind of thing um, but I think there's something that's quite exciting for us about being the ones that are actually manufacturing these things so you know that kind of feeds into it uh, an awful lot um, I think we see some risk with Asian supply chains in general uh, centered on Taiwan uh, a lot of the time um, it's not a we're not on an economist podcast here it's, it doesn't have to get geopolitical but I think everyone knows, you know, what what I'm referring to there. And, you know, we, we do see some risk in that supply chain. So, you know, while potentially we will, for the foreseeable, always use some form of production in the Far East, um, I think offering that as a as a kind of arrow in the quiver is is quite a nice thing to do. Um and it certainly makes business sense if we can if we can pull it off. And you know, I think it's it's also fair to say it's driven by the market as well. I think that's that's probably fair to say. Um you know the most people that uh, are consumers in the bike industry now I think have an eye to um the sustainability of of what the companies that are making these products are doing. And I mean, I can tell you for free, it's not particularly sustainable to make carbon in Asia, put it on a boat, send it to the Far East, sorry, send it to the UK and then uh, air freight it around the world. And that, that's what everyone does. That's that's certainly not just us, but it's not particularly sustainable. Um, 
And if there's things we can do to make things a little bit more sustainable, that's going to be great. Uh, I think there's a recyclability advantage as well. I mean, if we've got control over the manufacturing process, we can make sure that we've got processes in place to recycle frames. And and not just, I mean, there's a few comments that appeared on some of the um, media articles about this process. It's like, why is anyone worrying about recycling frames? It's, it's, not, all to, it's not to do with a, a frame that you buy with your lifetime warranty and ride for 10 years and then you want to recycle it like that. That would be great if that's what happens. It's it's actually about being able to recycle uh, some of that factory waste as well, frames that aren't quite right, frames that are rejected, actually being able to recycle them. And, you know, obviously, as part of the control over that manufacturing process, uh, you can get those reject rates right the way down. So, you know, I think there's an awful lot to be said for it. And I think that we can't put our heads in our sands and uh, heads in our sands, heads in the sands, in the sand as, um, you know, as as people in the, in the bike industry we've got to make sure that we're um leading by example especially in an industry that is touted for how sustainable it is um i think maybe it's not as sustainable as people maybe think so yeah we're, we're thinking towards towards that as well um so there's a whole host of advantages to the to the approach um i think although you know we've got an open mind now um we're a small company. That's the beauty of being a small company. We can kind of adapt to, to change in situation and change in technologies. And, you know, this is what we see as really promising at the moment. But, you know, two, three years down the line, we might have changed our mind. Yeah, no, fair enough. And on a, I guess, somewhat related note, I'd be curious to hear a bit about how you wound up going down this path of exploring the 3D printed titanium and carbon tubes and so on for the construction of this, because, of course, you know, what you said about not wanting to just attempt to replicate Far East production in the UK makes loads of sense. But, you know, there are a multitude of ways one could go about making a bike frame. And what was that process of just trying to decide what seemed like the viable UK based path to head down was look like? Yeah, so I mean, uh, you've, you've, you've said it absolutely right. Uh, we didn't want to copy and paste um, doing things in Asia. And, and you've got to you've got to be price competitive um, with what we do. We don't want to be offering frames here that are, you know, eight eight thousand dollars for a frame. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, it just excludes so many people. We want to be able to ride our bikes, and we want as potential customers. So, you know, and ultimately, copy and paste in the um, Asian process of making carbon fiber frames uh, in the UK would result in a frame that was pretty much the same as they would produce uh just at you know double the cost um so it doesn't it's not it's not exciting so we want to do something new i mean you know a lot of people can fabricate uh steel frames uh, I, I think it's been done i think plenty of plenty of uh great little companies in the uk uh do that and around the world do that um again you 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 can't really you when you're producing a steel frame you're not really competing on price if you're making it in the UK. Um, you're competing on something else. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's also, let's be honest, steel frames are, are heavy. Uh, alloy, you can get nowhere close to what Asian production can do. Um, absolutely nowhere close, which is why no one does it. Um, so, again, it kind of leaves, it doesn't leave many options open. 
uh, apart from something that's very high end um, that offers an advantage for us through the supply chain, which mitigates the slightly increased cost of labor, largely increased cost of labor in the UK um, and the cost of uh, just putting these facilities into the UK. So we kind of arrived at some kind of novel novel technologies that allow that kind of push button approach to production where it's not all about volume. Um, you know, and that that's the key thing. It's uh, Asian production really works for volume. So we're not a volume manufacturer. Uh, we do quite small batches, very small batches out of Asia uh, relatively to, to a lot of companies. So we kind of thought that something that allows small production runs would be really useful for us as well, kind of doing one-offs or, um, you know, and that's where this kind of idea of 3D printing really works. I mean, we were super impressed when we saw what the Athertons, it was robot bikes and then the Athertons have done. Um, I mean, it, it looks fantastic. I'm sure it works really well. I've not ridden one, but I'm sure it works really well. And, you know, being able to bring that production to Wales is is really cool. So we're super inspired by by their example of, of bringing production to the UK and high-end production as well. And I think it's a space where, you know, our bikes are high-end now and our competitors are other high-end bikes. So it needed to be high-end. And, um, you know, ultimately, alloy bikes aren't considered particularly high-end. Um it wouldn't make sense to Asian production. So it kind of leaves you with some form of carbon fiber or titanium really as a, as a material of choice. Although it's, it's interesting when we say carbon fiber, I mean, one of the things we're looking at, which is uh, hopefully going to make it into production is, is thermoplastic carbon fiber, uh, which is one, it's recyclable, it's repairable. Uh, it could be the layout process can be massively more automated than um, traditional carbon fiber production. So again, it's, it's not, it's not in any way just copy and paste in what can be done somewhere else in the world. It's it's very much uh, kind of developing an entirely new process for doing it. I mean, I think it's, Gorilla Gravity use uh, thermoplastic carbon fiber and successfully and competitively make frames in, is it is it the United States? I think it is, isn't it? Yeah, it's the United States. So yeah, um, using an awful lot of automa automation and robotics. So again, you know, they're, they're a bit of an example that it can be done and it can be done at a price point. You just have to think a little bit outside the box of what um, what the big brands are doing with Asian production. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. And I guess I actually would be curious to circle back a little bit too and talk about what the experience of going and setting up production in Asia was like initially, you know, as a company that was, I'm sure particularly at first making quite small production runs of bikes, but um, still going for the, you know, Asian produced carbon fiber frames really from the get go. Um, how did that all go? Uh, it's tough. Really, it's really hard. When you find a, um, a factory that uh, want to work with you, um, I, when I say that, I don't mean plenty of factories want your business, but want to actually work with you and have a long-term relationship and, um, you know, understand what we're looking for in terms of the, the standards, then it's, then it's quite easy in some sense. Um, but that process of finding that factory and setting up that relationship is, is very, very difficult. Um, and certainly, um, 
Yeah, certainly a lot of sleepless nights when stuff does go wrong. Stuff goes wrong. If you're going if you're going to do um Asian production, quality control will go wrong at some point. You will receive frames that aren't right and you will have to get them sorted. Uh you will send frames to customers that aren't right and you will have to sort that out. Um you know, we pride ourselves on the customer service and whenever that's happened, uh we make sure that we're very transparent with our customers what's happened and what what's gone wrong. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's so it's tough. I mean, we received a, a batch of frames once that hadn't had our decals put on before the clear cut, um, which is, you know, an interesting fail from the quality control side of things. I don't know what they were looking at, but clearly, clearly not much. Um, so yeah, you go, you go wrestle with all of this and it's, it's very, very tough. Uh, Chris, um, our kind of technical director uh, has, uh, when he was able to, you know, able or you weren't able to for a long time, but when he was able to, was was on a plane over to the factory quite a lot. Um, you know, we we have a lot of meetings with our, you know, the factories in our supply chain to make sure these things are right. It takes an awful lot of effort, an awful lot of managing. So, yeah, it's tough. I would imagine so. Yeah, uh, and I guess just all the more reason to at least be exploring bringing things back home. And it's something that we've been hearing a lot of companies looking into and at least if not going full bore on it right from the jump, you know, taking steps to figure out what it would take to make it happen. And, you know, you guys clearly very much included there. And yeah. And you're right in saying that these baby steps are quite important. It's, it's a nice idea just to kind of go, right, we're getting rid of, you know, Asian production, we've seen advantages in doing it at home. We're going to set up a facility and on we go. It's it's not quite as simple as that. I mean, the main problem is is one of price point. Um, I think customers are prepared to spend more on something that's made in the West, um, but not that much more. You know, it ultimately is the, is the hard reality of it is that they're prepared to spend a little bit more. Uh, but one, they want a, a noticeable increase in, in quality and, you know, they want to be getting something for that for that extra money um, short of just a made in Britain Union Jack on the back of the bike. But they want to be getting something for that extra money. Um, and, you know, there's a there's a limit, right? Um, there's a limit to, to what someone wants to spend just for that made in UK, made in USA badge um so you've you've got to make sure if you want to exist as a company you've got to make sure that you're doing it in a way that is cost competitive i mean people say to me all the time say wait a second um the uk has all this experience in manufacturing top-end carbon bits and i'm like yeah formula one team that's spending 200 grand uh you know what's that three hundred and fifty thousand dollars on a on a wing uh fine make it in the uk it's not a problem um to make a bike that is, you know, able to compete in the high end sector, which is what between three and a half to five thousand dollars for a frame, that kind of level, like wow, that's really difficult. That is really hard, um, and to do that in the UK is pretty impossible. Um, it's pretty difficult. Uh, there's there's exceptions to the rule. I mean, it's pretty cool to see what Oprah doing. Um, 
making carbon frames in the UK. It's it's pretty amazing. Uh, we don't have uh, a twenty million pound uh, component business backing up the business. We we can't afford for it to fail. So we've kind of got to got to approach it in in baby steps and um, yeah, make sure that. Uh, we're absolutely ready and that the market exists for it and that the technology and the manufacturing methods that we are proposing to use are appropriate and are scalable. And yeah, there's there's a there's a huge list of things that we need to be totally sure of before we commit to it. Yeah, no, I, that all makes perfect sense and seems very consistent with a lot of the other companies that we've seen doing smaller steps towards you know, making one model in their home country or something like that, rather than just doing a wholesale swap over. But uh, very cool to see those steps being taken and very much looking forward to seeing where that all goes in the future for you and, you know, all the other companies out there that are doing something in that vein as well. So, um, yeah, like I said, just can't wait to see more. And uh, I think that's probably a pretty good note to wrap this up on. So, yeah, absolutely. So the one thing I'll, I'll just say is we're going to be releasing a kind of full blog post on our website. And um, for anyone signed up to our newsletter as well, it's the best way to be informed of this. We're going to be releasing uh, a post just explaining uh, pretty much what we've talked about here, the kind of whole process, some really nice photos of the prototypes, uh, when they may be available. There is There is some talk of doing a very limited production run at the moment, um, not next week but you know in the next few months uh the next 12 months maybe doing some sort of uh kind of production run for for this technology and seeing how it goes um it, it certainly will be more expensive than we would like to get to but for those early adopters or for people that like shiny titanium it's uh it's maybe something that uh that is pretty exciting it's certainly um Titanium is is always exciting to see on a bike frame. I think everyone's drawn to it. So, uh, yeah, we'll maybe do something to satisfy those those people that are like me and uh, drawn like a magpie to to shiny shiny metal bikes. So, yeah, uh, watch this space, and we will keep releasing more information on what we're doing. Uh, as I say, the newsletter is definitely the best way to stay up to date with that. Um, so yeah, we we should we should speak again as well when we're a little bit further down the line, or maybe have some some more stuff to share. Yeah, and the prototype certainly is quite striking looking. So uh, it's a cool one, and looking forward to seeing where it goes. Like I said, and yeah, follow up conversation once you've gotten a bit farther down this path and seeing how things are going would be cool. So looking forward to that when the time comes. And thanks again for coming on, Ben. This has been great. Thank you very much, David. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, we would very much appreciate you leaving us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts to help keep the show going and growing. I'd also like to say thanks to Ben for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. We'll be back again next week. Bye, everybody.